0: Welcome to Polycast, I'm your host Davey, and on this show I explore the lives of Cal Poly students, faculty, and alumni who share their stories and experiences. Please enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Nishanta Raja also known as Nishi, who is a geoecology professor at Cal Poly. We're going to dive into what geoecology encompasses and the practices and research that students and faculty perform in this field of study. Nishi also spends a lot of his time connecting with students as a faculty and resident. He hosts tea parties, hikes, and other activities to bring the Cal Poly community closer together. Nishi, welcome to Polycast. Thank you so much for being here. Well,
1: thank you, Davey. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you so much for the invitation.
0: And so now that you were in this kind of whole field of botany, what were kind of some of maybe the big things that you focused on or interest you? And then how did that transition to kind of what you're doing now with the geobotany?
1: Right. So, I mean, I, um, you know, I've, I've been, you know, since an undergrad, um, I, I've been fascinated with uh, plant ecology, essentially, you know, how do plants interact with the, the abiotic, the non-living and the living biotic components around them and um, you know as an undergrad um took a class called plant evolution and in that class i did a final project on plants that are restricted to extreme harsh chemically harsh soils right and that was my very first exposure to what i now work on which is uh, plants that grow on serpentine soil so serpentine um, is a word that is loosely used to describe soils that are derived on California California State Rock, which is serpentinite. So serpentinite is what you get up on the Poly Ridge. You know, there's some parts of the Poly Ridge that's covered by serpentinite, Irish Hills, South Hills, Cuesta. I mean, there are a bunch of places on the Central Coast where the bedrock is serpentinite. These are mantle rocks that have high levels of heavy metals. Low levels of essential plant nutrients. So, the, the soils that are weathered from these rocks are really kind of harsh substrates for plants to grow in. But the plants that end up colonizing these substrates and end up being able to thrive or live on these substrates because they've got the right set of adaptations often become restricted to these substrates because they are good at dealing with that, but they are not as good as dealing with um, normal substrates. In the presence of many competitors. So they get excluded from more normal, more benign substrates, and they become restricted in the harsher soils that they are able to deal with. So in California, there are about 300 species of plants that are only found on serpentine soil, right? So there's there's California's, if you think about California's biodiversity, a lot of the plant diversity is shaped by geologic diversity and serpentinite is a really important component of that geologic diversity that i'm talking about so so i'm interested in understanding how now you know um, my primary goal uh, primary objective in research is to kind of show the important role that geology plays in both generating and maintaining biodiversity in california and in other parts of the world i work in south africa quite a bit I also work in South Asia, mostly in Sri Lanka, and then I have collaborative projects in places like Russia and Iran and, and other places. Uh, but, but, but my primary kind of research objectives is to understand the diversity, eco, ec- ecology, evolution, and, and about conservation and restoration practices of, of habitats that are characterized by harsh soil, like serpentine soil.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, and now with the, because I'm thinking like the geological timescale, I would assume it's a lot longer, like rocks aren't changing as much as say plants and the biodiversity. So is there kind of like a matchup with those or is like the biodiversity of plants changing a lot more and adapting just based on like what kind of geology is around or how do those kind of timescales line up?
1: Right. So, I mean, I mean, you know, plants have been around for, you know, at least the flowering plants have been around for 140 million years, obviously, you know, rocks have been around for much longer. Right. But, but at the same time, um, you know, these rocks as they weather into soil, Provides habitat for plants to colonize. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you see these very sharply defined boundaries across sandstone and serpentine, across chemically distinct substrates, because I mean, plants have been around for a long time. And then when plants are exposed to unusual habitats, they can respond to that exposure either by excluding. You know, not growing on those habitats, or if they have the pre-adaptations or the traits to deal with that substrate, they could colonize that substrate and over time, you know, figure out how to persist and and reproduce on those substrates. So plants are constantly exposed to these substrates. Mm-hmm. Some plants are able to deal with it. Some plants aren't. But there's also a lot of um, studies that show that plants can evolve rapidly in response to unusual substrates, right? I'm talking about, you know, several generations. You don't have to take millions of years over several decades, maybe a hundred years. You could have populations that basically um, establish themselves on these hard substrates that have budded off from populations that were off this substrate. So they're genetically distinct populations that are that are somewhat related because they originated from the one that was off the harsh substrate, but that has now colonized this harsh soil. And then over time, they become reproductively isolated, which is really a critical component in the process of evolution. When you reach reproductive isolation between adjacent populations that are related, then you have the opportunity to kind of evolve on your own, along your own evolutionary trajectory. So there's a lot of examples of rapid evolution happening in response to harsh soils. Something, sometimes these are like naturally occurring rock outcrops. Sometimes this can also happen in response to anthropogenic influences like mining. Like Some of this research that I do are on mine sites, where the bedrock has been kind of brought to the surface and there are all these tailings from the mining activity that are really, you know, small fragments of rock that quickly weather into soil that are really chemically extreme because they've got nickel or chromium or lead or cadmium, and now like plants are, you know, are exposed to this new man-made habitat right. that has high levels of heavy metals. And if you go to any mine anywhere in the world, you see plants on these mines, right? So obviously. Plants are finding a way to deal with the hard life that they're presented with, and that's through evolution. I mean, it's evolution acts in amazing ways by bringing things that are, you know, you know, are able to tolerate with these, tolerate these conditions to those particular habitats, and then over time they further change, and down the line we might end up getting a whole new species that didn't exist before in response to the kind of the harsh substrate. That, uh, that they are presented with. So there's a lot of cases of new species originating on soils that are either contaminated due to human activities or on substrates that are naturally occurring, like limestone, gypsum that are calcium rich, or serpentine that is heavy metal rich. Uh, And there's a whole range of other types of substrates. In fact, if you look at California's plants, about half of California's endemic species, meaning plants that are restricted to California, double as substrate specialists, meaning that they are not only endemic to California, but they're also endemic to a type of rock that is found in California. So wow. geoecology is really about describing these patterns that come about by changes in geologic conditions.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And again, to show that the changes are there and prevalent and happening all the time. That's pretty Mutations
1: amazing. happen all the time, right? Yeah. Not that every mutation will end up turning a population into a new species, but even if one in a thousand or one in a million does it, given that new changes are happening all the time, that's how diversity comes about, right? That plants are presented with unique opportunities to expand their range. And suddenly there are some plants that are pre-adapted or have the right set of traits to be able to tolerate those new conditions, which would eventually lead to the origin of a new species could eventually lead to the origin okay. of a new species. So I study evolutionary processes on harsh substrates as well.
0: Okay, interesting, that's so cool. Now, tying it back to Cal Poly, how are students involved in your research here?
1: Yes, I, uh, you know, I have had a passion for working with undergrads from the very first day I started teaching, which obviously was not at Cal Poly. You know, Before I came to Cal Poly, I taught for 10 years at College of the Atlantic, which is where I did my undergraduate degree. So I actually, in a strange set of you know, ways, uh, you know, uh, I ended up back at College of the Atlantic because my advisor who got me into botany uh, passed on at a young age. And uh, you know, I went to see him as he was uh, you know, on his way you know, out sadly. And he kind of made me promise that I would apply for his job. And even though I wasn't quite ready Uh, To even think about it, because I was still doing a postdoc here in California, that I, you know, I kind of he was asking me over and over again when I went to see him whether I would apply for his job. And I said, Craig, you're not going to, you're going to be fine. You know, we'll talk about it if we have to later on, but you're going to come back to the job, you're going to be okay. And then he said, like, just tell me that you would, would apply. And I, of course, within a few weeks of me seeing him, he passed and then the job opened up and i applied and uh, of course got the job and 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 you know it's, a str- it's it's really strange for me to think how it all turned out because never in my dreams that i did i think not that because i want didn't want to but i didn't really think that he was going to pass at such a young age and there would be an opening for another botanist to come and teach there but then you know i went back 10 years after i graduated and i taught there for 10 years and, and, and it was lovely because I got to know his son who was pretty young when the father passed. And, you know, I, I got to know him really well because he lived close to where the university was. And, um, and I was able to even help him, you know, apply for colleges when it came time for him to think about applying to colleges. So, so that, you know, you know that, that made it all worth it. You know, just like being, a, being able to be there for people I knew as a student myself and uh, so and this school was predominantly undergraduate focused and and all of my research was done with undergrad. So when I moved to Cal Poly, uh, that is something that I was really excited about doing, kind of instilling a passion for science in young minds and 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 using research as a tool to teach so rather than kind of doing research to kind of you know promote the work that I, I mean promote myself or like you know advance my professional career. You know, I was more, I'm more interested in thinking about using whatever set of skills I have and connections I have to advance the careers and futures of my students I work with. So under, working with undergraduates gives me great, great pleasure for that reason. So I've had you know close to 30 undergrads who worked with me in my last three years at Cal Poly and uh, many of them have gone on to work in environmental sciences. Um, you know, in industry or gone into grad schools uh, and um, are currently working for the state or the federal government in in the environmental sector. So I get undergrads involved in my research at every level from, you know, getting them involved in grant writing uh, to designing projects to actually carrying out the work. Much of the research that I currently do um, is carried out by undergrads. And, and then, of course, get them involved in the writing of papers and presenting of the research at conferences, both regional and international conferences. I was supposed to take eight undergraduates to Russia last year. We got the funding, I was all excited about this. This was the, the, the only and the largest conference on geoecology that happens anywhere wow. in the world. That happens every three years in different countries. And last year's conference was supposed to be in Russia, but of course it could, didn't happen because it's, we wanted to do it in person, not on Zoom. And so unfortunately out of the eight undergrads, actually now all of them have graduated. So whether I'm going to be able to take them next year when this conference happens is questionable. But but they were all undergraduate research projects that were going to be presented at this uh, international conference. Uh, so mostly working with undergrads, but currently um, I have five graduate students who are doing research uh, for the Bureau of Land Management or the US Forest Service. These are projects that the Forest Service or the BLM wanted done. They all have to do with some component of geoecology that has a strong kind of a management implication. So these students are doing projects on lichens. Lichens are these cool symbiotic organisms that are, you know, part fungi, part algae. They live together, and they are really important component of ecosystem of the ecosystem uh, in terms of nutrient cycling and things like that. Um, they, uh, so I have a student whose work comparing lichen communities. On and off of serpentinite rocks, so he's comparing lichens that are found on serpentinite and adjacent sandstones outcrops, uh, side by side or nearby, and then he's comparing how climate influences these geologic relationships between lichen, uh, the the geologic affinities of lichens by by sampling lichen diversity from the coast to the inland. So he's got he's got you know sampling sites that are right by the coast, you know you know, 10, 15 kilometers inland and further inland and looking at the influence of climate on this kind of lichen substrate relationship. I've got a student who's working on a lichen that is really rare, is only found in Montana de Aero in Los Osos. Uh, We are trying to declare that as a federally endangered lichen and because lichens lichens are not as exciting as plants. I mean, you don't think plants are exciting because most people get excited by animals, but lichens don't even get the little bit of attention that plants get in in the conservation world. So there are only currently two lichens listed as federally endangered in North America. So we are hoping that this lichen that has such a restricted uh, distribution, I mean, only in Los Osos, only on sh- some shrubs, not in every shrub wherever it grows. So it's highly localized, highly restricted. So we are doing ecological surveys and characterizing the habitat to kind of, to petition this, this lichen as a case for a federally endangered lichen. So my grad student got a grant from the IUCN, which is an internet, the, one of the international organization that deals with the conservation of rare organisms. So we are hoping that that study will eventually lead to the declaration of a third lichen in North America that is going to get federal endangered status, which would be huge because then you know, be, you know there's, there's, there's more effort and interest in terms of its conservation.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow, As a that's student exciting, studying and... the Caruso Plains, I mean, that's another place, right? I mean, we get excited about the super blooms, right? If you grew up in California, you know, you've heard about the super blooms. Everybody drives up to Fresno to see this Carrizo Plain, which has these kind of palettes of color that pops up in the winter. But nobody had really looked at how these plants, uh, 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 these kind of bands of color that you see in Carrizo Plain, are controlled by differences in soil conditions. Because what you get in Carrizo Plain is highly clay soil that has high levels of salt. And these plants that you get there are adapted to different degrees of clay in the soil and different degrees of salt in the soil. So she, she is basically looking at how differences, subtle differences in soil chemistry and soil texture is contributing to these patterns of color that you see in Carrizo Plain. So that's kind of a really exciting study. She's already done a field a greenhouse studies and is currently looking at the massive data set that she has wow. to see what we can tell um, the Bureau of Land Management and other organizations that are involved in the restoration of some of these degraded habitats in Carrizo Plain um, in terms of what to think about in terms of restoring that landscape. Because you know a lot of restoration efforts fail because we don't really pay attention to the plant soil relationship. We just sow seed thinking that something will make it, right? But then some plants are very locally adapted to a specific set of ecological conditions. So unless you know what those conditions are, your restoration efforts, however many millions of dollars you spend, may never really take root because you know that you know it's it's just you haven't done the science to do uh, do the restoration well. So that's one of the things that, we are working on right now with respect to Coriso Plain. So there are a bunch of other projects with endangered rare plants and lichens that we're working with, mostly to inform better conservation and restoration practices. So a lot of what I do now, you know, as I've aged, you know, before in my 20s and 30s and 40s, I was most excited about like doing stuff that you know, better informed scientific theory, ecological theory, evolutionary theory. Now, I'm still interested in that, but I'm getting more interested in what can I do to better inform conservation practices and restoration practices, right? Because that's you know, how can you make sure that the science you're doing is is you know communicated to those people who are actually on the ground trying to do stuff to manage and conserve and these populations, as well as restore the habitats where these plants and animals and 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 lichens are found.
0: Yeah, wow, well, that's so cool. I mean, so many different projects you guys are working on, and um, yeah, so much to come out of it, and um, you know, great mission and for all of it, and you know, have that restoration and protection. Um, So fascinating. Um, If people ever want to kind of like learn more about some of these projects, what's the best way to either get in touch with you or learn more about what's kind of going on in the geobotany and all that world?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, they can always send me an email and uh, join my Facebook. I've got almost 3,000 students following my Facebook right now, which is all about advertising student work. Uh, As you know, I'm also the faculty in residence at Cal Poly. I was the first to be hired in this role. I've been doing this for the last... Three years, I live with the first-year students in the Yakitutu residential community, and and part of the FIRE program is really to kind of enrich residential life through programming that I do along with the RAs and the CSDS um, to um, to you know. M- make students realize that university education is not just what happens in the classroom, but it happens all the time, even when you are in your dorm when you're hanging out with your friends, and and when you are, you know, and so so the FIR program is really a, a way to make sure that students have the opportunity to get to know faculty outside of the classroom. So as part of what I do, I also bring other faculty to the residence. Hall. So sometimes I bring them to have office hours in the dorms, right? And, and they always tell me that most students showed up to office hours in the dorms and they've ever had students show up to office hours in their office on campus. And study sessions, exam review sessions, get so many students because all they have to do is just come out of the room in their PJs into the re, into the lecture hall in Yaki Tutu. So the study sessions and the review sessions are, are way more well attended than they ever have been when they are conducted on campus in a classroom. So, so, you know, so so that's another way. So students can reach out to me uh, in my role as FIR. So a lot of the first-year students, I get to know them. Um, and then I you know, I get to know them in very informal settings. I mean, that's really the key here, rather than thinking of me as, you've got to go to my office to get advice on geoecology or get advice on international travel or get advice on what to do during your gap year between your undergrad and whatever else you decide to do. You know, we can do this over a cup of tea in my apartment, or we can go to Starbucks and have a cup of coffee or go on a hike and, and, and talk about, uh, academic planning, talk about, you know, what to do in the summer, right? Or, you know, you know, all of these things that students need to be thinking about being exposed to from day one uh, can happen in a very informal, relaxed setting uh, um, in, in this kind of in, in when faculty uh, have opportunities to interact with students uh, outside the classroom. So I love the FIR program. We currently have two other FIRs on campus in mm-hmm. addition to myself. Padma Maitland is in PCV working mostly with uh, architecture students and transfer and upper division students. And then we have uh, a new FIR from the Department of Kinesiology, Dr. Joni Roberts, who's um, at Sarah Vista. And she's interested in kind of public health-related issues. And uh, my goal, you know, is to try to get a faculty into every campus residence. Uh, before I retire from Cal Poly because that would be wonderful because I mean with three faculty to deal with the thousands of students we have I mean it's just really hard right you end up getting to know people who also take the initiative to get to know us I mean we do presentations earlier on but then you've got to take you know the initiative to keep that relationship going and know, hundreds of students do that but I wish I could reach out to everyone right and and again I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to be appealing to every person on campus. So you've got to bring many faculty with many different backgrounds, many different academic training kind of training. And and that is what's going to get, make students reach out to this faculty because different people, you know ha, you know you know get attracted to different people or feel comfortable talking to different people based on their own background so what i would like to see is this range of faculty from different academic disciplines different personal backgrounds uh, living with students so that they can bring uh, the classroom and the university education to a whole different level that you cannot achieve inside a classroom
0: yeah well, that's incredible, and you know best of luck. and I wish I had that when I was you know a freshman. You know, that's so great you're doing that. So we really appreciate people like you. and again, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all these incredible stories. and yeah, we hope to see you around some more on campus.
1: All right, David, thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you and and again, you know students can reach out to me via email. Um, they can follow me on Facebook. Um, students are trying to get me on instagram i'm just not that tech savvy but at some point i should get on that but in addition to that let me also say some of the things that i currently do for students who are currently on campus on sundays we do hikes in the morning and this is through a club that we formed a few years ago called plants peaks and Pals. and this is a, a basically it's a club for people to climb mountains get to know the plants because i go hiking with them and then become friends along the way. And it's a really popular event. Uh, We get anywhere from 20 to 40 students attending our hikes. And then I also do the tea Club, like you mentioned, and that's most likely going to happen every Tuesday night, this term. And if they're interested, they can send me an email and I can add them to the GroupMe accounts we have for both the tea Club and the Hiking Club. And for anyone who wants to learn a new game, uh, which is obviously one of my favorite sports, cricket. Uh, which is uh, obviously not very popular in the US, but everywhere I've lived in the US, I popularize cricket. I mean, there are students in Maine playing cricket 30 years after I introduced cricket to Maine. So my goal is to start in, start playing cricket on Sundays um, at Cal Poly. And we actually had our first session last Sunday and I've already got, you know, two dozen students who, who have emailed me uh, saying that they want to join the cricket um, sessions on Sundays so that's another thing to keep an eye out for once we set a date and a time I will advertise that on Facebook and hopefully people can join us to have some fun with cricket as well
0: awesome well that sounds like an exciting quarter ahead man a
1: busy one really try to make up for all the time lost you know last year we didn't get to do a lot you know it was everybody was kind of we didn't really know what to expect and uh, it was a tough time last year uh, working as an FIR as a faculty in residence because I didn't you know I didn't really ever feel that I was doing my job the way I wanted to do my job and it was hard especially before the vaccines came uh, were given out uh, you know was quite, you know, was not comfortable dealing with students. And that was really a really hard place to be. But uh, now that things are a little different, I'm hoping that we can kind of get back to where things were uh, slowly, but, uh, but surely to get back to a place where we provide students with as many opportunities as, as we can to uh, get to know faculty, interact with each other and 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 be a part of our community as quickly as possible, right? Rather than waiting till the third year to say that I need to get to know some faculty, you 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 get to know them right away. And and we are here to facilitate that as faculty in residences at Capali.
0: And I think and you know, everyone's learned a little bit about you today. And so hopefully they can keep that up and reach out and go on some of these hikes or tea parties. Um, yeah. And so, again, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure and hope to see you soon.
1: All right, David. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to give it a thumbs up or five stars wherever you're listening from. And we'll see you next time here on Polycast.